0: But uh, I'm back in Judges. Chris has been preaching through Judges, and it's a lot easier. The hardest thing for me in a sermon is coming up with what to preach about when you're the one-shot, occasional guy. So I'm just picking up in Judges. And I got uh, Judges chapter 8, so I'm picking up in there. And uh, that's a tough chapter. Uh, I had to read that uh, many, many times. And so I'll be expositing with you all tonight. And uh, from this chapter, and so there's it, not as much time in there, and, and I'm sorry, I'll get to rolling fast. If somebody needs to do this, I won't think you are just slow down, slow down, but, uh, but I'll get to rolling fast. So I'm going to work in a story before we start that has absolutely nothing to the sermon, but I couldn't really think of some good uh, illustrations to put in. But I heard this good when we were home uh, back home this weekend in Tennessee. For the Fourth of July, Mary's mom always has this big Fourth of July celebration, and people come in from neighbors and family and stuff. Come to her house, and they cook out all day and stuff, and we sit on the hill and watch small town fireworks, which is kind of like boom, two, three, boom. You know, it's like get it over. It's like shoot them in two minutes and get it over with. Um, But anyway, there's this notorious family in in, in our town for, for. Telling jokes and and just pulling pranks and stuff, and they ran a feed mill in town for a long time. And they told this story about one of the brothers. And every year around planting time, when they would set out the the silver buckets that would have the different seeds uh, for the corn and the peas and different things. So one year he sets out this silver bucket, and in this silver bucket he has a special kind of seed. In front of it he puts donuts, and so he's got donut seeds. And so people are kind of looking at it, looking in it. Well, what he's done is he's put a box full of Cheerios in there. And most people come up and see it, and they go, aha, oh, oh, that's funny and stuff like that. I get it. But this one lady comes up, and she goes, what is that? And he said, well, it's, it's donut seeds. What do you do with those? Well, you, you just dig a hole, usually about six to eight inches deep. You put them in there, cover them up, and in 30 days, you got donuts. And she's like, wow, you know, I've got to get some of those. And so, you know, he's loading her up some, and he goes, Now, let me tell you a little something special that I don't let most people know. Before you cover them up, if you'll put two or three spoonfuls of sugar on there, you'll get glazed donuts. <laughs> Whether she bought them and he sold them to them, you know, I, I don't know. But, and that has absolutely nothing to do with what we're sharing tonight. So, amen, we're done. You may go home. But Judges chapter 8, in Judges chapter 6 and 7, just to review a little bit, Chris has been talking about Gideon. And Hebrews chapter 11, we get Gideon is one of the heroes of the faith. And we get this great story about Gideon in chapter 6 and 7. And in chapter 6, just a little bit of review, in verse 1, it talks about the Israelites were doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because of that, he had allowed for seven years the Midianites to come in and, you know, kind of basically just abuse the israelites they're coming in they're destroying their crops they just come in and mass they set up tents they destroy their crops they steal and kill their livestock uh there's probably some you know abuse going on of the people but this has been going on for seven years well why has it been going on when verse 10 of chapter 6 it says that i said when you take this land don't worship the ammonite gods but you didn't listen so as they took over this land and were pushing the people out, and that was happening because those people had had 400 plus years to repent and they hadn't. And so God uses the Israelites to establish his kingdom there to push them out. And obviously they get more. If you read the story of Josh and Jericho, they get other opportunities to repent, but they don't take advantage of that. But he's like, push them out. And when you push them out, you push their gods out as well. You don't have anything to do with them, but they accommodated it those gods. And because of that, they were experiencing the punishment from God. And so in chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, we see that God raises up Gideonite. And we first picture Gideonite in those verses, and he is at this wine press threshing out wheat, a farmer kind of in hiding. And this angel comes to him and says, you know, mighty warrior, I'm raising you up. Mighty warrior, I'm a farmer hiding at this wine press threshing out some wheat. Seriously? Seriously? And you see a little bit of why God chose him because he's kind of like ignorant to the problems that are going on because he's a little angry. He's like, why is all this? If we're your chosen people and you've brought us here, why is all this going on? And either he is just culturally unaware or more than likely he's got a a pure heart. And he talks about the fact in that chapter that he is the least in a small clan uh, among the, uh, the tribe of Manasseh. So he's probably just kind of insulated farmer and is not aware of all the atrocities that are going on. You know, he's probably like, why would you worship another god? Why would you, you know, uh, commit adultery with, a, with our great god? Why would you do that? And doesn't understand why it's happening. Well, he comes to an understanding of what's going on. And uh, he tells him, I'm going to use you to push these people out and to restore Uh, you know, me as the preeminent God in this land. And so he asked for a couple of signs. He asked for three things. He asked, you know, one time with the angel, wants to make sure it's real, so he puts out some food. The angel consumes it with fire. He puts out the fleece a couple of times. One time it's wet, one time it's dry. And so he realizes, okay. You know, that God's definitely raising me up. And for me to do what God's calling me to do, I had to know his hand was on me. And remember Chris said, we don't lay fleeces out very often. This is very unusual cases when you do that. And this is a life or death case for him and a lot of people. And he really wants to know God's hand is on me for this. And so probably starting with his family, with his tribe, he starts raising up an army. And we get into chapter 7. And, you know, you say, how does this farmer end up with 30,000-plus people? Well, the Israelites know their history. They know God takes people like Deborah, like Joshua, like Caleb, like Abraham. He takes average, ordinary people and raises them up and does great things. And so they probably hear this story about this one that had this, you know, visit from this angel and and what happened. And so they're excited, and they come, and they're rallying behind them. And they get at this rally, and they probably at some point they're looking around and going, Wait a second. I know there's a lot of us, there's 32,000 of us, but there's still 135,000 of those guys. We're still pretty heavily outnumbered here. Maybe more are coming and and maybe the enthusiasm isn't quite there, and so, you know, God sees that and he tells uh, Gideon, tell them, you know, if anybody's afraid, leave. And so 22,000 of them leave. And now it's 10,000 versus 135,000. So why the 10,000, why don't they go, whoa, let me just kind of back out of the situation. This is not too good. Why do they stay? Well, more than likely, their animals have been killed. Their crops have been stomped. Their family's been abused. And there's some of them like, Dad gummit, I may go out, but I'm taking some of them with me. And there's also some of them that probably saw God's hand on Gideon and trusted God's going to do something miraculous and I want to be a part of it. But there's still too many. And so he says, we've got to weed this down further. So they cut 9,700 more of them out. And you remember they cut them out by the water test. And he keeps the 300 that cup their hands, get some water, and lap like a dog. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I've never had my hands under a faucet and lap like a dog. So it's kind of unusual. You know, maybe these are guys out in the field trying to coax their animals how to drink. You drink like this, you drink like this, and it just, you know, caught on or whatever. But for whatever reason, these 300 guys are left. And these 300 have, once they say 300 versus 135,000, they have got to be some tremendous people of faith. And so that's kind of where we're picking up tonight, is in the end of chapter 7, in uh, verses 34, and uh, I don't know, whatever the verses at the end of chapter 7 are, uh, 23 and 24, we're going to pick up there. And I want us to look at four things about Gideon, because when we get to chapter 8, and chapter 6 and chapter 7, we have this amazing story of Gideon and his faith and all he does. And it is a picture of what Christ does for us. The fact is, as as sinners, we're in a hopeless, helpless situation. We have to live perfect life, that's impossible, and therefore we have our sin and that separates us from God and there's nothing we can do about it. But thank God, he provided Jesus Christ to provide deliverance for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And so it is a picture of, you know, Gideon delivering these, of of Christ delivering us from a helpless, hopeless situation because of our faith and trust in Christ. And that's what he does, and it's a beautiful picture. But in chapter 8, we get this whole different picture of Gideon. And, it, and, and when you read different commentaries about them, half of them kind of justify Gideon in chapter 8, and half of them kind of get after Gideon a little bit in chapter 8. And I kind of lean towards those based on, because the best thing to interpret text is to use other texts to help you understand. The best commentary on the Bible, as I heard this weekend, was the Bible itself. And so the last word we get from about what go, they're supposed to go and take the land is in chapter 7, verse 7. Where he said, The Lord said to Gideon, with the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give them many knights into your hands. Let all other men go, each to his own place. So that's the last word we see that he got. You and three hundred are supposed to push these out. But we get to this point in chapter seven, where he started so well with God, he was focused so well on God, and it's important that not only we start our relationship with God, but that we complete. Our journey with God and in between the dash that we live well for God because it's easy to come to Christ and we're humble and we're broken and we pour out our hearts to him and then the next thing we know we're just living life or at some point in our life we want to know God and we need answer we need direction we need deliverance we need guidance and we're pouring ourselves before God and we get that and pretty soon it's just back to living life until the next crisis or need comes along and what Gideon teaches us in chapter 7 where he's desperate for God and needs God. In chapter 8, that needs to be maintained. And in our lives, we need to maintain where it is not the exception that we are desperate and pouring ourselves out for God. But that's just daily. Every day, we walk out the door and go, oh gosh, it's hot. Instead, we walk out the door and go, wow, if we weren't the perfect distance from the sun, I would be fried right now. And I walk out in this planet, and, it ha- you know, and this little tiny rock's got the purpose, perfect atmosphere for me to live in. And look at all these, you know, creations of God around me and underneath me. Instead of just, oh, it's hot. It's easy just to miss the miraculous and to get going through the motions. And we need to live every day totally and completely dependent on God. So I want us to see four things really quick in the next 17 minutes that he teaches us about staying committed to God and the lessons that we can learn from that. The first one that I want us to see is the lessons we can learn in, in in the pursuit that happens. So at the end of chapter 7, in verses 23 and 24, he's just had the route. God's given the plan for this route of the of the 300 beating the 135,000. 120,000 are killed, 15,000 are left, and they take off in pursuit. Now, all of a sudden... We have to decide, was the decision that Gideon made next of him out of his confidence that God has raised me up into this great leader like Caleb, uh, like Joshua, like Moses, and therefore here's what we need to do, or is it a decision where he consults God? Because at this point in verse 23, he says... Israelites from Naphtali, from Asher, and Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth-Berah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth-Berah. So he defeats with Three hundred. The last thing we get in verse 7 is that he's supposed to defeat them with 300. And now that they're defeated and they're going off all in different directions, because these are people from a lot of different countries that are east of the Transjordan, they're not all just Midianites, there's Emer- uh, Ephorites and all different kinds of ites in this area, and they're going off in different directions. So in his mind, he thinks, okay, to get these people, what's the smart thing to do? The smart thing to do is to engage this 9,700 that didn't leave for anything bad other than they drank water the wrong way. Let me engage them in this process. And maybe the other 22,000 that got dismissed because they had a lack of courage, this is a great opportunity to instill courage in them and to let them know that God forgives and God restores and that you can trust him when he gives you a call and let's send them out. And, And the Ephraimites who were who one of the tribes, and, and the Midianites were going to escape through their territory and where they had to go. Let's use them. They're in that land. They know all the routes, and they can cut those off. That makes tons of sense. But we don't see evidence that that's what God told him to do. The last thing we see evidence that God told him to do was you 300 go and defeat them. But it's real easy when we start with God to very start doing what seems right to us, what makes sense. And it's not like he's doing something terrible. And a lot of times we make decisions. They're not bad decisions. They're just maybe decisions we haven't consulted God on. This is what my family tells me, my mom or my dad tells me. This is what my co-worker tells me. This is what this guy's got a lot of experience in this business tells me. This is what makes sense when I look at my financial portfolio. But what does God say in that situation? And the problem that I see in looking at the text, if we go into chapter 8 by doing what, oh, that makes common sense. You got 300 guys, there's too much territory, do this. The problem is the glory starts leaving God. And in chapter 8, we don't see God getting any glory. And the glory starts going to other sources. Because right off the bat in chapter 8, in verse 1, the Ephraimites, who he said cut off the people going home through the territory, You know the land, cut it off, that makes sense. Right off the bat, the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. Right off the bat, there's this fight that's going on about who gets the glory. Because he's doing what's best in his eyes and sends these people out and engages in the Ephraimites when it seems like the last thing that he was told was just use the three hundreds, it creates this fight and fuss about who gets the glory. Now, one of the things that you guys can learn from the Ephraimites, because these were fellow Israelites, is, you know, we need to give the honor and praise and glory to God. I've seen situations where miraculous things have happened, where we've had a great week at Bible school and coming from a smaller church you had to use every room in the church and you had a great week and a lot of kids were there kids came to know Christ and what do you hear Sunday they're sand and straw in my room you know the glory gets moved away from God and it gets focused on us great things happen in the church and we'll find something to criticize or critique instead of giving glory and praise to God and that's what the Ephraimites were doing here's a situation where 300 have just defeated a hundred and thirty five thousand praise and honor should be going to god but instead the e the ephraimites have made it all about them and we're not getting enough glory and we're not getting enough credit and you need to get uh, you know and, and gideon you're getting too much and it's easy for that to happen in situations and what happens when he focused on doing when i've got the many and the few there i just want us to contrast because gideon made the decision to use the many when god's it looks like the last word we got was to use the few. And that created conflicts. And one of the conflicts that using the many created was this battle that maybe should have never happened. If he's not using the Ephraimites, maybe they're not even upset. This battle doesn't even come up if he just sticks with the original 300. And if it does come up, because if you read about the Ephraimites, they were a contentious people in chapter 12. They get into it with another Israelite tribe about sharing the glory that I guess Chris will get to later in the series on Judges. But if it had come up with him using the 300, what they needed was not because, because some commentators give Gideon credit here for using the gentle word to calm the Ephraimites. We calmed them. You know, he, he gave them that word, didn't get to a fight and fuss. And what they needed was a good rebuke. This isn't about you guys. This is about God. And maybe if they get corrected at that point and they get humbled and they repent and get right with God, maybe what happens in chapter 12 doesn't happen. But when you start trying to settle things and handle things in your own way, it creates a whole lot of problems. We go on. The next example he gets into is verses four and five and uh, eight uh, in in chapter eight, and he deals and he and he comes across the people in two towns. One is I don't know how exactly how to say it correctly. We'll call it uh, Sukkoth and Piniel are the two towns that he comes to. But Sukoth is probably it's either in. When the Israelites took over the land, there were nine and a half tribes on one side of the Jordan River and two and a half on the other side. Well, Sukkoth and Peniel were on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And so was part of Gideon's tribe, Manasseh. Manasseh half was in one side and half was in the other. So Sukkoth was either in Gad or in Manasseh, and Peniel was definitely in Gad. But these were Israelites, and these were Israelites on the front line. Outside of them, out here, they're the front line to all these ites coming in. And they should be providing protection. And they should be worried. And they should be as excited as anybody about what's happening. That you have pushed these people out. Because these people have been coming through their land left and right. More than likely, they were taking bribes to let them come through their lands. They were probably selling goods and stuff and taking advantage of the fact that so many people were coming through their lands, but basically they were turning a blind eye. Basically, they were acting like traitors and allowing these people to come in that were abusing their fellow Israelites. And what can we learn from these two cities? What can we learn from Succoth and Peniel? We can learn, as as Christians, it's real easy just to blend in and not make waves. Nobody wants to be a hater. Nobody wants to be a phobe. You know, nobody wants to, you know, you're, you're a radical, you're a... So it's easy just to blend in. But the problem is we've been called to be soft and light in the darkness. We've been called to be different. And if we blend in, people don't see the light. And so it's important now more than ever that we set ourselves apart. We need to be set apart by love, by kindness, but we also have to have values that we're not ashamed that we identify with Christ and we're not going to compromise what our values are. But they were blended in because that was the easy thing to do. And this problem is created when he compromises because he goes into this land without seeking the direction with God. And, and maybe if he seeks the direction of God, God has intervened and these people have a positive attitude. They're willing to help. They're willing to support. But because he does it on his own and he goes here, the people are thinking, no, if we help you guys and, and, and you don't defeat These Midianites, the first ones they're going to come back and kick is going to be us. So, uh uh-uh, we're not helping you. We're not giving you food. We're not giving you water. We're not doing anything to show that we're helping you guys. We're just neutral. But really, by being neutral, they're siding with the other side. And what, in this situation, Gideon needed to do, and if he would have focused on God's plan and stayed with the 300 and been on his knees, he would have been saying, God, you provide for us. You miraculously provide for us. And God would have provided for them, just like he did in the victory. It might have been changing these people's hearts, but certainly these people, just like the Ephraimites, needed a strong word as well. They needed that word where he just got mad and said, I'm coming back and I'm getting revenge on you guys. People from Sukkoth, I'm coming back, I'm beating you with briars. People from Peniel, I'm coming back and I'm knocking down your tower. And the tower was, obviously, as they were on the front line, it was to watch for incoming enemy. And he says, you're not using it, I'm knocking it down. When he needed to go in and give them a strong word and said, look, God has placed you here in a strategic position. There's a call on your lives. You guys are our front line against this. If you need help, call the rest of Israel in to help you. And there is going to be punishment coming upon you guys if you don't embrace your calling and you don't get brave and you don't get courage. But instead of just getting mad and walking off, there should have been that word of challenge and teaching and pointing them back to the great things that God has done. But we don't see anywhere with those people that it's ever mentioned, let me tell you about the great thing that God has done. And you don't have to fear these people because if he can take 300 and defeat 135,000, he is more than capable of protecting y'all. But at no point do you ever see that pointed back to God. And then the last example we see, is about these two kings, Zeba and Zalmana. And these are two kings of the Amorites, well, are two military leaders of the Amorites. And they get mentioned several times uh, in the passage. And he is really dead set on getting these. And these are the ones that he, gets, that, that he gets chastised by the people in Succoth about. He goes, you know, I don't see the heads of these kings, so why in the heck should I help you guys? Because I'm not sure you're ever going to catch these guys, and these guys may come back and get us. What we can learn from these two kings, what we can learn, they thought they were safe. 135,000, verse 300, we're safe. Remember, chapter 7 is a salvation story. You can think you're safe from the judgment of God, but you're not. We're all going to face the judgment of God. And people that reject God and depend on other things for their safety and security, judgment's coming at some point. They would have said, There's no way we're as safe as we can be. Judgment is coming. And we need to realize that. People that don't have a relationship with Christ, judgment is coming. Those of us that have a relationship with Christ, we need to live a life that honors him because judgment is coming. That's what we can be reminded of in this passage. But with him taking this into his own hands, what you find in chapter 8, in verses uh, 19 and 20... He says in there, you kind of find the rest of the story, he says, then he asks, Zeba and Zelmana, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? He says, men like you, they answered, each one with bearing a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. So you find that maybe the reason that right after this victory, over the 135,000, when he realizes God's with me, I've got this, we're a powerful force, they're running, they're afraid. Before, I was this scared little guy when they were in our land, and I knew there was never I, I could never do anything. But now, I'm powerful, I'm strong, and by gollies, I'm going to get revenge on these two guys. And so the thought right after is not consulting God. They're on their run. I'm going to go get blood revenge on these two guys. And he does ends up capturing, he ends up killing them. Now, that is just by the law based on what they did. But the problem was, in the pursuit of them, he should have consulted God and not just taken it on on his own. Because what you find out in chapter 8, in verse 4, is it talks about the fact that, yeah, he engaged all these people. But when they go after the 15,000, it says Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet, kept up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. And then down in verse 11, when they catch them, who catches them? The 300 catch them. He engages all these people. God's plan all along was to use 300 to defeat and to use 300 to finish it. And he didn't need to engage all these people. It was to stick with God's plan all along. And when he follows God's plan, you know, God would have all along... He would have caught these two kings. They would have been brought to justice for what they did. But he needed to do it on God's terms. So, finishing up. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 20, what I want to remind you of in all of this. Because Gideon is an amazing story, his life, and what God did. But again, most importantly, it's a story about what Christ has done for us. But when you start your walk with Christ... We need to continue every day with Christ. By him choosing to kind of take things and do what seemed to be wise in his own hands, the Ephraimites who needed a word of correction, they didn't get a word of correction. And they go on in chapter 12 because they don't get corrected, fight with other Israelites, and the Israelites are killed. The people in Succoth and Peniel, instead of getting the correction that they needed and the guidance that they needed... Instead, he beats them with briars. The balkanization, the separation of the tribes that that had begun just gets escalated. The people in Peniel, you know, he, he not only knocks down the tower, he kills all the men in the area. So here on the front line where they're having border issues and they need men, he's taking the men out and just making the problem that much worse because he's doing what's best in his own eyes instead of seeking God. It's so important that when we start with God in your walk with him, that you stay with him. There is no decision, no matter how small, no matter how big, that we don't need to be consulting God with. We don't need to start any day that we don't start our day with time with God in prayer and Bible study. We don't need to make any choice or decision. Now I'm not talking about white shirt, red shirt. But we don't need to make any decision, financial, where I move, where I live, you know, how I'm going to go confront somebody, you know, dealing with precepts in the Bible that we need to take on. I'm going to go share Christ with a friend. God, I need your help. We don't need to be doing things in our power and our strength, but in the strength and the power of God. And that's what chapter 8, verses 1 through 20. He didn't do terrible things. He didn't do awful things. That's why a lot of commentators commended for some of the things that he did. But I think he missed doing the best Because he started doing things in his own strength, his own power, his own knowledge. He got caught up a little bit in who he was instead of staying humble and dependent on God. So I want to remind us tonight that you have started with Christ if you have a relationship with him. Be honest and examine today. Have you spent time with God? Today, have you got alone and thanked him and praised him and opened your Bible and just to get to know him a little bit? If not, you don't have to kick yourself. Just... Say, God, I'm sorry I didn't take advantage of that. And go home tonight before you go to bed and spend some time with them. And make a plan. Get somebody to help hold you accountable. You know, because we see that a lot in Scripture. Abraham, God didn't answer quick enough, so what does Abraham do? Well, gee, uh, hmm, let me take on. Culturally, it's acceptable to take on, you know, uh, this lady, so I'll take her on, have a child through her. That didn't create any problems, did it? You know, uh, J, you know, Joshua, when he defeats Jericho, great battle. Here's a little city of Ai. Oh, it's a, you know, it's a small, tiny city. I don't need to consult God about this. I know we've beat, won this battle. We can defeat this battle. I don't have to consult him and because he doesn't consult God. He doesn't know sin's in the camp. God's hand's not on him, and they're defeated. It's r- great people in the Bible this has happened to. And if it happens to them, it can happen to you and me. You know, there are days that I go by and I'm thinking... Where was, what did I give God today? Did I give him leftovers or did I give him my best? Did I really take time to listen to him and hear from him? Is this a decision I made? Are these words that God would have guided me to say? Every day we've got to make it a commitment to make God a priority and spend time with him. Start with Christ. Be committed that you're going to go to your grave at Christ as long as you can think and breathe. You're going to be living for Christ and praising Christ. Thank you, God, for this portable pot. Thank you that I can get down the hall. You know, whatever it is, you're going to go praising God. And then while in between, during that dash time, we're going to praise God, seek God, live for God, honor God, worship God, because God has put us here to know Christ and to make Christ known. That's why we're no matter what you do, we're here to know Christ and to make him known. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for loving us and caring for us. And Father, thank you for great men like Gideon who showed such courage uh, to stand before an overwhelming army with weapons and power and strength with only 300, uh, just a farmer. But Father, he put his faith and trust in you and you brought victory. You brought something that brought glory and honor and praise to God. And Father, thank you for the example in chapter eight of where it was in trying to do his best and trying to serve you, it was easy just to take things over and not give you the praise and honor and not listen and talk to you. So, Father, help us to learn from that. And just like in our our salvation we started with you, that every day that we live as followers of you, that we will continue in you. And and we will seek every day to know you, to make you known, to live for you, to learn from our mistakes, and just to let our lives be like